You are listening to a presentation of Streams Church in Goodyear, Arizona. For more audio and visual content, go to streamschurch.org. And now, Pastor Lloyd Baker. Um, we're studying the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus chapter 20. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, that's 1 through 17. Um, there's, a very mis- there's a very common misunderstanding about the character of God because He's shown to, uh, he's decided to show, him, show himself in such a diverse way throughout the ages. Uh, theologically, we call it dispensations, that there are certain times and periods that God has revealed himself to mankind, and usually they're in different ways. So God interacted with humanity in the Old Testament differently than he interacted with people in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, differently than he interacted with the church, um, even differently today as he interacts and then the book revelation says when he comes back one day we're going to have a totally different interaction so the common mistake is this is that that there are different phases and aspects of god so um when you approach the ten commandments it gets very confusing because although we receive salvation and god's grace in this dispensation as a free gift there's something a strong sense in us that we have to go back to the old testament concept and we better obey Even though everything is by gift of grace, we better go back to the way that God sort of revealed himself according to our understanding. And we better constantly improve ourselves and adhere to certain rules, codes of conduct, um, if we want him to bless us, accept us, and receive us. So we receive by grace, but then we better go back and do what that does if we really want to stay in good favor with God. Here's the problem. The book of Hebrews tells us specifically that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever so although the manifestations seem to change or how god interacts the core value and the core aspects of who god is have always been the same and sometimes through false teachings or misunderstandings we have sort of separated in fact you'll see it sometimes you'll say well that's the god of the old testament and then there's jesus And then there's the Holy Spirit. You know, there's this God that really disciplines us. And there's Jesus who loves us and gives us grace. And then there's the Holy Spirit that challenges us and empowers us. And we separate the Trinity and the Godhead. And I want to just say right now that God has always, throughout all the ages and forever, had the same concept and theme and how he was trying to teach us. It's like that. So we talked about that last week, that it hasn't changed. He's always been the same, even in the Ten Commandments. We started with commandment number one last week, Exodus 21 through three. Then God gave all people, the people, all these instructions. And first he said, I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt to the place of your slavery. Excuse me. (coughs) You must not have any other God but me. He said three things about this. Number one, God just starts off and says, I am your God. I'm a personal God. This is a relationship. Number two is, I'm the one that has delivered you from slavery out of bondage into a relationship with me. So we have to understand that. First of all, it was God who delivered us. He is our God. We're in relationship. And therefore, he says, because of that, I want to be your one and only exclusive God. Will you allow me to be your God, your one and only? So God's rules are not a condition of God's love. So in other words, I don't obey his rules to get into relationship with him. He had already delivered Israel. 
He'd already brought them out of bondage. He already bought them out of slavery in Egypt. They were already in relationship. So obeying the Ten Commandments did not change that. They were in relationship. God's rules are a confirmation of God's love. And you can tell a lot about a person to whom they give their rules. I give my rules to my children. I don't give them to your children. So God's starting off saying, listen, you're my children. We're in relationship. Now, I just want to ask you one thing. Number one, will you allow me to be the one and only God? Exclusive. Can we have an exclusive relationship? We can apply the same principle in the New Testament. Jesus gave his life for us, for our salvation. He paid the price so that we could receive the free gift of grace. So Jesus says, I've done it. I've done all the work. I've delivered you. Will you allow me to be your savior and your healer and your forgiver? And we said this. God doesn't give you rules to get you saved, right? God gives you rules to keep you safe. We, we, I think we're in the next slide or two. Is that right? No? Am I wrong? Okay. Um, Jesus didn't die on the cross because he thought you might get it right. Remember that? Jesus died on the cross because he knew you'd get it wrong. And so, being commandment number one is a declaration and life that declares to God, you're my one and my only, my exclusive God. And if you don't get commandment number one right, the rest of them don't mean anything. You can live by all of them and it doesn't mean a thing. So you've got to get number one right. I want you to be my one and only exclusive God. So we're going to go to commandment number two today which is an interesting one that's been really misunderstood for a long time. Verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself any idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations, who are those who love me and keep my commandments. And I have heard throughout my oh, 1970, since 77, my, how many years that is, because there's no way I'm going to do the math right now. <laughs> I'm waking up at 4.30 in the morning. I've heard so many definitions about what an idol is in today's present situation and world. People have told me, well, that's an idol. Well, you, you know, if you, that's, oh, here's, here's one. If you cheer for your sports team louder than you cheer for God, that's an idol. If you, my office is not full of, of pictures of eagles with scriptures underneath it. I'm just going to tell you right now. It, I don't have these little, you know, wonderful. I just went to a, a place of business and they had John 316 all over the place. You go into my office, you see diamondback memorabilia everywhere. I have the original five Diamondback bobbleheads from the 2001 World Series Championship, okay? That's what I have in my office. We make a lot of decisions together. And uh, Randy Johnson's usually the one that just like us, like, you know what I mean? But the rest of them are usually doing this. And so, uh, I mean, we, we, we like. I was at Game 7 of the World Series when we won the championship. I screamed so loud, I lost my voice. I twirled my daughter around. I didn't realize we were in the front row of the third level and her feet are flipping around the railing. And I pulled it. Well, anyway, um, it, it was exciting to me. And in the past, I would have had religious people tell me that 
because of all this, because of all these things in my office, because, that, that, that they could be idols in my life, or my love or devotion to my sports team is bordering on idolatry. Here's another one that I've heard. Taking inventory about how you spend your time. And if you spend more time reading Facebook than you read God's book, that's becoming an idol to you, right? So you got to be careful. you got to watch it. Here's If you watch TV too much, or if your TV's too large, <laughs> then you got to be careful. If you're, if you're watching TV more and you're listening to worship music, then it can become an idol. And I'm not sure what size TV puts you in the idolatry, but I'm sure it's the size bigger than mine, okay? Just, just a step bigger than whatever I have. So you need to take inventory of how you prioritize time in your life and realize and try to figure out, am I spending too much time? Am I living in idolatry? Are these idols to me? I've heard of that. Here's another one. Actual physical pictures or statues. You gotta be careful what you have in your home and and there's certain things that go with certain things. You know, wolves go sort of go with wicked worship. You gotta be careful. Don't, if you like wolves, don't have a picture of a wolf in your house and um, you know, you walk into your favorite Chinese restaurant and you see this, uh, you know, overweight guy or this waving kitty, you know, as you walk in, you know, and I have people say, those are symbols of false idols. You got to be careful. And, and you're like, but I really like that Thai restaurant. But, you know, it's a walk in and uh, um, they're sim- they are, they're symbols of false religions. And there are those who fear such things that you can't be around that. Um, I have a, an aunt who had this amazing, wonderful ceramic owl collection in her house. It was just what she collected. And when my birth father left when I was two years old, my mom had to go get a full-time job. And this aunt pretty much raised me, helped raise me during these times. So she's very special to me. And when I was 18, I went on a mission trip to Europe. And I was in Holland, and I saw this wonderful, cute owl made out of seashells from the North Sea, and I thought she would really like that, and I wanted to just, so I bought it for her, and I brought it home, and I gave it to her, and it really blessed her, and it made me feel happy. Well, then she was, her life was sort of turning sour, her marriage was in disarray, some of her children were not doing well, and she went to a message, and she heard a guy preach about some of the Old Testament uh, warnings and curses and all these things, and they were really prophetic utterances, and God was using analogies, if you will. And in that, one of the analogies was the owl was a bad symbol or was a, a part of a false religion. And so he said, if things are going bad in your house, if you're not doing well and you have pigs or owls or all these things in your house, it could be that's a curse on your household. And so I was going in the ministry. I'd just been in the ministry. And so she calls me up. She says, listen, and I get it. I get it when people need hope. I get it when things, you're just grasping for anything. She says, listen, would you come and pray over my house? And I want to destroy every owl figurine in my house. And so we went out back and I remember we prayed and I'm sitting in there with her and I have a hammer and there's that owl that I bought for in Holland. And I'm just like pausing going, okay. And I, I smashed it one after another after another. Um, unfortunately, things didn't change. And she ended up in divorce, and she still has a child that's really in, in, you know, messed up in a lot of ways and really needs help. And the question is, God, is God really concerned about which sports team that you're passionate about? 
And some of you, yeah, he really is. <laughs> he wants my team to win, not there. I mean, he's an ASU fan. This week I'm at men's retreat and people go, you got a devil on your shirt. I go, I know. I'm Because I had a pitch. I mean, they were like, I can't. How did you bring that in the church service? It's ASU. And I'm like, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, but that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do you think he really cares that my office is full of D-back memorabilia? Is that what this commandment's talking about? Is he concerned about the size of my TV or is he afraid of my bobbleheads or the waving kitties or the chubby Asian guy? I mean, is that really where God is messed up? And, and actually, interesting enough, the New Testament deals with this very subject. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read the Living Bible because it's a conversation and it reads really well. And he is dealing with, Paul is dealing with this argument in the church. There's an argument going on between two factions in the church. He says, next is your question about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And this is this big argument going on. On this question, everyone feels that only his answer is the right one. Anybody been in a church where everybody thinks their answer is the right one? Their answer is the right one, but although being a know-it-all makes us feel important, what is really needed to build the church is love. In other words, quit majoring on minor things. Let's major on love and grace for one another. If anyone thinks he knows all the answers, he's just showing his ignorance. But the person who truly loves God is the one who's open to God's knowledge. So now, he gets back to it. What about it? Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. And there's only one god and no other. According to some people, there are a great many gods, both in heaven and earth. But we know, we know it's not true. There's nothing to that. There's only one God, the Father, who created all things and made us to be his own. And only one Lord, Jesus Christ, who made everything and gives us life. However, some Christians just don't realize this. They're confused. All their lives, they've been used to thinking of idols as alive because they've worshipped them and have believed that the food offered to idols is really being offered to real and actual gods. They think that way. So when they eat such food, it bothers them and it hurts their tender consciences. And just remember that God doesn't care, listen, whether we eat it or not. Because it's just not real. We're no worse off if we don't eat it, and no better off if we do. But be careful not to use your freedom to eat it, lest you cause some, and we can say uh, newer, weaker Christian brother, to sin whose conscience is weaker than yours. And in those days, what, what, what this is talking about is you could go to the back of a false religion's temple, and after somebody would sacrifice the goat or the sheep, they would take the meat or the cow and they take the meat out back and they would sell it at a reduced price to make money. And so some of the Christians who had been a part of that whole thing said, there, you can't eat that meat that's been offered idols. Oh my gosh, how dare we eat that meat? And they're arguing and the other guys are going, I'm just looking for a good deal for my family. I mean, this is reduced price meat and we can eat this because there's nothing to this. And Paul is dealing with this argument that's going on in the church. Imagine that. It's so strong that he has to bring it up and it's included in the Bible. That's going on. And so he says of them, what does he say? He says several things. Quit being a know-it-all about minor topics. Just chill out, man. Loving each other is what really builds up the church. He says, in one version it says, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. 
Um, he says an idol is not a real God. It's just not a God. It's just a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. It's ceramic. That's all it is. Uh, there's only one true God. There's only one true God. And because there are no other gods, really, and God is the only true God, He could really care less whether you eat that meat or you don't eat that meat. It's a matter, it's not a matter of spirituality, it's just a matter of choice. So if it bothers you, don't eat it. If it doesn't bother you, eat it. If it bothers somebody that you're having dinner with, don't buy it because we don't want to bother them. Don't, you know, let's just love each other and use freedom, you know, sparing. So if you're by yourself and you want to save some money for your family, go get the meat. It's okay. Because there's nothing to it. It's just a piece of wood. It's not real. And when God is speaking about commandment number two, don't have any false idols in your life, you have to understand it really is an extension of commandment number one. It's a further explanation. In fact, the rest of all the Ten Commandments are irrelevant to these first two. These are the really the two that you have to get. Now, follow my train of thought for just a second. I am the Lord your God. That's commandment number one. I'm the one to set you free. We have our in relationship. And I want to be your one and true and only exclusive God. And then, not only that, I don't want you to make any images or bow down to any other gods. Or a better way to say this in context is, I want to be your only one in God, one and only God, and you shall have no other gods in addition to me. I don't want you adding other gods to me. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it made a whole lot of sense to them. Remember when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments the first time, the story is found in Exodus 32. Moses went to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from God, and the Israelites, whom Moses had just let out of Egypt, looked towards the mountain. There's mountain, there's smoke, all this stuff's going on. And Moses spends 40 days up there, and it just seems like a long time to them. They're not sure if he's ever coming back. They, they couldn't wait. They were afraid. And so they turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Make us a golden calf. And Aaron says, Give me all your jewelry and all the gold. And they melted it down, and they formed it into a, a golden calf. And the people were praising. And God told Moses, You better get down on the mountain because we're about to lose these guys. Moses comes down in anger, throws down the tablets. They're worshiping this false calf. And listen to what, um, what Aaron says. Oh, great calf, you are the God who brought us out of Egypt, and we praise you most highly. They replaced God with the golden calf. Um, the rituals that they had were making burnt offerings to the calf. They ate, they drank, they were merry. In Egypt culture, the, the calf or the bull god was the life source or power god, the one that gave life and power to us. And so when he said this, he said literally to the people, this is your God, your life source and your power who has brought you out of Egypt. The cow is now replacing the Lord in this miracle of deliverance. And Egypt, where they came from, had lots of gods. They were there for 400 years. And every god they knew had an image or an idol and a place that you went to to ask that God to do something to you. In your life situation, determine which God you approached. You went to the place where they abided and, and made a sacrifice or a prayer. And uh, so when there was a crisis that arose in your life, you'd go to that God. When the crisis was subsided, you forgot about that God and went to the next God that you needed. 
And now, so God is saying this is, I'm the one and only exclusive God. And that was unheard of in all of history because every culture up to that time had multiple gods that's, that were specific. This is what I do. This is what I do. And this is what I do. If you had drought and your crops were failing, you went to the drought God, the crop God, and you made a sacrifice and you prayed and you asked him to bring back the crops. And when the crops came back, guess what you did? You put them back on the shelf and you forgot about them until your crops were failing again. And you brought them down, you dusted them off, you prayed to them, make sacrifices, you put them back. You can't get pregnant. They had a God for that. The fertility God. You go and you make sacrifices. You pray to that God. So, you, you know, I'm praying and hoping that I can get pregnant. And so, your child's sick. You go to that God. Go pray to that God. And you bring him in. They had a God for every and any circumstance of that life could bring your way. And so God is saying this. Instead of looking to multiple deities to solve your problem, I want to be your one-stop God. Just come to me for everything. I want to be your exclusive God. I want to be your only God. I want to be the one source that you depend on for everything. I'll take care of all your issues. You come to me for everything. War issues, come to me. Economic issues, come to me. Your daughter's sick, come to me. Your finances are in trouble, come to me. I want to be your one and only God because, newsflash, I am the one and only God. There are no other gods. They're not real. And on top of that, listen to this wording. Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. (laughs) I want to be the front and center of your life, smack dab in the middle. And we get that, right? Think about your marriage vows. Lloyd, do you take Judy to be your wedded wife, to live together in marriage, do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her for better or for worse, for rich or poor, sickness health, and forsaking all others? Be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live. And I do. And I do over and over and over and over again. It doesn't change. Commandment number two is the continuation of our wedding vows to God. It's saying to him, yeah, I want to be in a relationship. And not only that, I'm going to forsake all others. And you make be the only. So, so Israel meets God and need harmony, right? <laughs> I'm not promoting the harmony. I'm just saying. Um, and uh, the first couple of days go great, man. He does some amazing things. Whites out a whole army in the Red Sea. I mean, he does some miracles. And they're like, man, I, I, I like him. I think he's a, he's a great God. And he's so much better than all the other gods that I've dated before in my life. And so God finally pops the question and says, do you want to be my bride? And I mean, Israel's all fluttered and said, wow, yeah, I, yes, I do. And then God says, I forgot to mention something. I'm incredibly jealous. I, I, I don't want you to consider another God. I don't want you to look at another God. I don't want you to become great friends with another God. I don't want anything to compete with me in your life. I deserve front and center. That's what I want to be. And see, that's what I want with Judy. I want to be her man. Right? I want to be her stud muffin. I don't know if they still use that, but anyway. I don't want her looking at another man. 
to fulfill her needs, take care of her. I want her to come home to me and only me. I want to help her when she needs help. And, and please understand, God is not some insecure God that needs attention. He just understands that your life works a whole lot better when he's in the front, center, in the middle of it all. Because he loves us so much, he wants to be everything, all the time, the source to fulfill all your needs. And here's the implications. He says, don't you dare treat me like you did the gods of Egypt. Confine me to a moment, to a time, to a situation, to a crisis. Don't you do that to me. I want to be your one and only exclusive God. And then I want to be in the middle of it all. And so I'm beyond all that. I permeate all that. I'm with you. And it was so foreign to these people. You mean everywhere I go, you're there? Yes. You mean every situation I'm in, you want to help? Yes. Every crisis, every time something goes good? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I want to be to you. And see, they got that. Because they, they had a whole different system with all these other gods. They bring them off the shelf, pray to them, and put them back and forgot about them. And God says, don't you dare treat me like this. But God, you're the Sunday a.m. service God. Mm. But you're not my midweek softball league God. <laughs> I mean, I've got to draw the line somewhere. I go to church on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, I mean, work is a different ball game. And, and uh, I, we shift it down. And then Friday, you're just a shadow. And forget about spring break. It's like, God who? I mean, I just... And God is saying, don't you dare, do, don't you dare box me into something that you can manage. Don't you put me there. Don't you shrink me down. Don't you dumb me down. Don't you put me to a moment. Don't bring me out when you need a miracle in the midst of a crisis. And then when, when I perform the miracle, you just put me on. You know why? Because I'm a jealous guy. I want it all. I just don't want a marriage of convenience. Wherever you go, I want to be there with you. You can pray to me at all times. I will be there. He is not confined to a certain place or, 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 or even an image. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He permeates every space. Commandment number one, I want to be the one and only God. Number two, that permeates every aspect of your life. And don't you try to manage me and use me and, don't you, and then forget me. Don't do that to me. Does it make sense? Because I'm a jealous guy. Now, the warning is stern. This is tough stuff. If you take me out of the center of your life, if you shrink me down to something that you can manage, you just put me into a day, you put me in a building, you call out me when you need something, you make me the last option to all your problems, a part of your life, not the whole of your life, the one that solves your crisis, and then you forget about me. If you do that, it's going to affect your children and your children's children. Listen to this. Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. Punishing the children. He's talking about people that do this. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generation of those who love me and keep my commandment. That's, that's heavy stuff. I almost want to ask you, how many illustrations do you want me to give to you today of situations that I've seen that, that have fit this category? Because I have a ton 
moms and dad who are all smiles on Sundays and angry the rest of the week. You know what that does to your children? I'll tell you right now. Pastors who use their power and their influence towards their own gain and even their perversions. Do you know what that does to children? People who pray to God for a great job and after they get one, don't want God to do anything with their finances. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't you direct me. Thank you for the job and now I'm going to do what I want to do with it. God becomes a genie in a bottle, the winning ticket in the lottery, the savior of my marriage, but that's it. And when the crisis is over and everything's good again, I forget about him and put him away. And the next time I need him, I pull him out again. And God is saying, don't you dare put me in charge of one area of your life and leave me in all the areas because don't you dare turn to me in a crisis. Don't make me a crisis, God, just like you did the idols in, in Egypt. Because when the crisis is over, you forget about me because I'm a jealous God and I want it all. Forsaking of others and be faithful to me as long as you live. Because if you don't, if you don't do it the right way, if you do it that way, it's going to affect your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. My grandmother was a godly woman who served God with a full heart. I still remember her as she got older crocheting um, little booties for, for orphans in, in Central America and South America. And that's how she spent her time. She would just make all kinds of little things and send them on missions and just for the children and like that. My grandfather, he's a great man, did not serve the Lord. He came to faith late in life um, after he had a stroke and was sitting in a wheelchair. Actually, I was there and helped let him. And all I could say was yes and no. But as he raised his children, he was not the man that served the Lord. You can go to my family. I, this is my very, very large firm family and almost split them in half. Those who love and serve God and those who don't. It's almost a 50-50 split. And those who do, here's the interesting, most of their children are fully engaged in serving and loving the Lord. And those who don't, most of their children are not. Half and half, just like my grandparents. He says, you be careful when you do this to me because it will affect your children. But now there's good news. Listen to the good news. If you will make me the one and only God, if you will put me in the centerpiece of your life, permeating every part, and you just won't treat me like you do the gods of Egypt, if you refuse to try to manage me and to fit me into your schedule and only call on my name in a crisis, if you'll wake up every morning and say, Yes, sir, your will be done. What do you want from me to gay God? Come be a part of my whole life. If you'll do that, you will be blessed for a thousand generations. Your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, there will be a blessing that will flow upon your life because they'll connect the dots that it's real. And God knew this. Your life works better when I'm in the center. And it's a great decision to make Jesus the Savior of life, but have you ever made Him the Lord of all your life? That's what he wants. Commandment number two is, I want it all. <laughs> I want to be your exclusive God, but that's not it. I want it all. I want it all. And we understand that because we don't enter in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, where we don't want it all. We want it all. Because it affects every decision we make and it affects our family. And so I want to give us just a moment to think about that and pray about that. And maybe you haven't made that decision 
And the worship team can come forward at this time. And, um, let's take a posture of prayer, if you will. And allow the Lord to speak to your life and your heart. And Idolatry is very, very simple. It's putting God into a situation and only in one situation or in certain situations and leaving Him out of other situations. It's assigning to Him a specific place and not allowing Him out of that box that you put Him in. It's not giving Him full reign. And He's a jealous God. He wants everything. So today, Lord, we make the decision to give you everything. We're not going to dumb you down. You are the all-powerful one. You are the Lord of our life. Forgive us for the times that we just put you in a situation and make you our last resort or a crisis and call on you and then forget about you. Come be a part of every decision of my life, Father. Every day, speak to my heart. Show me your way. And I choose to follow that. So, Father, come into my finances and direct me. Come into my marriage and direct me. Come into how I father or mother my children and direct me. Come into my workplace and show me how to show other people love for your name. Come into that place my sports teams and all the things that I do for fun, come into those places, Father. The things I do watch or I don't watch, come into that place and and, and talk to me and speak to me. I give you permission. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Streams Church in Goodyear, Arizona. Email any questions to streamschurch at msn.com. The mission of Streams Church is very simple, to lead people into their life calling, a relationship with Jesus Christ that is challenging, growing, and purposeful. For more information about service times, location, or events, go to streamschurch.org.